You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. The Church just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, and so I thought I would look up maybe one or two of Archbishop Sheen's presentations on the Holy Spirit And I found a beautiful talk that he gave a number of years ago uh, titled The Theology of the Holy Spirit, and I will share that with you today. Uh, But I think what people ask me all the time is, you know, what is the problem with the church today? And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's sometimes a bit of a rough ride, I think, and we look at what has been happening over the years. But, you know, Fulton Sheen wasn't afraid to answer that question from time to time. And I was able to find in his library of talks a reflection simply titled, The Problem of the Church Today. And so I thought I would share that with you also. So uh, I just invite you, as I always do, just to uh, get you to sit back and relax and to enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, uh, the Venerable Sheen, as he talks about the Holy Spirit. Please enjoy. Perhaps there has been no area of our theology which needs so much to be explored as the Holy Spirit. We have been brought up in our philosophy and theology and catechism on the dichotomy of body and soul. I remember the catechism that I learned, which should we take more care, our body or our soul? Well, obviously the soul. We were even taught that this body was a worm and was evil, was the enemy of the soul. Nowhere in scripture is the body the enemy of the soul. It is the flesh that is the enemy of the soul. The body in Greek is soma. The flesh is sarx. That is the evil principle. Scripture does not describe man in terms of body and soul. So let us get back to biblical truth and find out who man is. Man is composed of body, soul, and spirit. 
not a spirit with a capital S. When we come to mention the Holy Spirit with a capital S, we will call attention to that fact. For example, just to take one of the many passages from Scripture, St. Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part and keep you sound in spirit, soul, and body without fault until our Lord Jesus Christ comes. The word spirit is here spelled with a small s as it should be in the New English Bible. Then again, Paul tells us that the word of God is as a sword dividing the soul from the spirit. In the Magnificat, Our Lady makes the distinction. Magnificat anima mea. And exultavit spiritus meus. Now what is the difference between body, soul, and spirit? The body relates us to the universe. Thanks to the senses, we absorb the cosmos. The soul, the mind, communicates to us the rational universe, the arts, the sciences, philosophy. The spirit gives us God consciousness. So we have three kinds of consciousness. We have sense or world consciousness. We have rational consciousness. And we have spirit consciousness. Every person in the world has these three. When man was created, his spirit was elevated. When he fell, the spirit sank down, as it were, into his soul or mind. It did not disappear. The closest analogy that I can think of is that of alcoholism or addiction. An alcoholic, in virtue of that addiction, has his reason, as it were, sink down into his senses. He cannot think as well under the impact of alcohol as he can without it. Now, sin blurred our God consciousness, and it sank down, as it were, into our our soul, our mind. But every person in the world has this potency for God. Everyone. Children, for example, we know immediately have this capacity for God. And atheism and agnosticism and the like are acquired. When the spirit has some expression of its own, 
In the language of Wordsworth, it trails clouds of glory. Some of us lose this spirit consciousness very much as time goes on. What the Incarnation did was to lay hold of this capacity. St. Thomas calls it a potentia obedientialis. A dry stick has a greater capacity for burning than a wet stick. Man, because he has this spirit, has within himself a potency for the Holy Spirit. Why did not our Lord remain on earth? There would have been many advantages. Mothers could have brought their children to him to be blessed. We could have been awed by the majesty of his being. And yet he said, it is better for you that I go. If he remained, he always would have been outside of us. Never any closer than an embrace. But if he left and sent his spirit, then he would not be an example to be copied. Then he would be a veritable life to be lived. So that he would be in us. He would abide in us and we would abide in him. The ideal of the spiritual life is not the imitation of Christ, it's the participation of Christ. So that he possesses our spirit, our soul, our body. This is the great advantage of his leaving. How grateful we would be if someone had the power, for example, to infuse into us the spirit of Shakespeare or Dante or Michelangelo. And yet what is that in comparison to the infusion of the Spirit of Christ? Now when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes into our spirit, it does many things, but it has to be developed. It would take a dozen conferences to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm only going to speak about, well, very important elements in the life of the Spirit of Christ. First, what the Spirit of Christ does is to unify our being. It pulls us together so that we no longer have problems of identity. Can you imagine a man 25 years of age say, I'm troubled with the problem of identity? Glory be to God. He lives 25 years and he doesn't know who he is. And why is there a problem of identity very often? Simply because there are no limits. How do we know the identity of the state of Missouri by its boundaries? How do we know the identity of a basketball court by its foul lines? How do we know our identity by law? Well, just as soon as you repudiate law, boundary limits, sure, 
You're troubled with a problem of identity. But what it does, the Spirit does, first of all, is to unify us. The best psychological treatise in the Scripture is found in the seventh chapter of Romans. Here is psychology at its best. In chapter 7, St. Paul, in many translations, uses the word I, me, my, myself, 30 times. Now, when a man is constantly using the word I, he's no longer unified despite that affirmation. So that St. Paul, maybe he's writing his own autobiography here. It certainly is ours. I know nothing good lodges in me, in my unspiritual nature. For though the will to do good is there, the deed is not. The good which I want to do I fail to do, but what I do is the wrong which is against my will. And if what I do is against my will, clearly it is no longer I who am the agent, but sin that has its lodging in me. I discover this principle then, that when I want to do right, only the wrong is within my reach. In my inmost self, I delight in the law of God, but I perceive that there is in my bodily members a different law, fighting against the law that my reason approves and making me a prisoner that I am. Miserable creature, who will rescue me when doomed to death? That's through chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, You find the word I, me, my, myself only three times, and that is because he ends up chapter 7 by saying, Thanks be to God, I myself, subject to God's law as a rational being, am yet in my unspiritual nature a slave to sin, but there's no condemnation for those who are united in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, the life-giving law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and the law of death. The Holy Spirit gives us peace and unity. This analogy might help. In a family was a boy who never combed his hair, washed his hands, never clean behind his ears, had no manners at table, and whenever he went out the door, he slammed it. The parents begged, pleaded, coaxed, cajoled, threatened, bribed, without avail. One day he came down, neat, clean, And when he went out the door, he closed it gently. He had met Susie. (laughs) 
there was a new love principle introduced into his life. And that is precisely what the Spirit of Christ does in us. A love principle. There is talk of a generation gap. It is not a gap between young and old, because the gap exists in the old, among the old themselves, and among the young. The only gap is the spirit gap. It is those who have the spirit of Christ and those who have it not. That's the gap. It does no more good to talk to them than it does to talk colors to a blind man. Do you think when a dog is vaccinated that that dog has any understanding of what the scientist is doing? A mouse who is eating the keys of a piano cannot understand why any skilled pianist should sit down and play Tchaikovsky. Because the mind of a mouse, the brain of a mouse, cannot understand the mind of man. But that divergence is not as great as between those who have the Spirit of Christ and those who have it not. That is why our blessed Lord said, Throw not pearls before swine. Sometimes you just have to let them go to allow the mercy or the justice of God to work on them. But what the Spirit of Christ does is to introduce then the love principle so that we love. Now we have to, therefore, keep close to Christ and his Spirit in order that this may grow. And we might speak of the advantages of apostolicity and the like, but I want to take an opposite course here and speak of the Holy Spirit in relationship to sin. How do we know what sin is? Sin is not the breaking of a law. There is not a priest in the world who has not exceeded the speed limits and there never was a priest who, after he exceeded the speed limits, at the end of the trip, leaned over the steering wheel and said an act of contrition. None of us are sorry for breaking a law. That is one of the reasons why a morality based just upon the commandments is not the kind that will keep people faithful. So we are told in the in Scripture as regards the Holy Spirit, our Lord, the night of the Last Supper, said, I will send the Spirit who will convince you of sin. The Spirit convinces us of sin. And then our Lord went on, because of your unbelief. What did unbelief do to our blessed Lord? Unbelief crucified our Lord. What then is sin? Sin is not just the breaking of a law. Sin is hurting someone we love. That is sin. And there's a great deal of difference in the reaction of those who 
have faith and love of Christ and those who do something wrong and lack it. Those who lack the spirit of Christ fear a judgment. They fear being caught. With us, we are not just so fearful of judgment as we are ashamed at hurting someone we love. That is why real sorrow is always before the crucifix. This is what I have done. The crucifix is my autobiography. My life has been written. His skin, the parchment. The nails, the pen. His blood, the ink. And in every part of his body, I can read one of my excesses. This is sin. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us this understanding. And as we get away from the Spirit of Christ, then we develop situation ethics and the queer morality of the, of the pagan world. And as we stay close, we are not just so much concerned about doing the things that we ought to do. It's rather loving. And simply because we do love when we sin, we throw ourselves immediately back in the arms of the blessed Lord. Just imagine two men who married two old shrews, impossible shrews. One of the men was married before to a beautiful, lovely woman who died. The other was never married before. Which of the two suffers the more in marriage? Evidently the one who had the better love. And that's the reason we suffer more than the pagans. Sin bothers us. And St. Paul tells us, therefore, grieve not the spirit, sadden not the spirit. You and I as priests have not had in our lives perhaps over five times a deep, profound, overwhelming consciousness of the presence of God. I'm not speaking of emotional presences like the first mass where there's been great acclaim, but rather something alone that we would hardly ever talk about. Not over five. Though we have not felt his presence, how many times we have felt his absence? Countless times. So there's white grace, which is his presence. There is black grace, which is his absence. And when we sin, we suffer more because the finger of God is stirring the soul and he is saying to us, this is not the way. I'm making you unhappy. So we never quite escape. Just think of the terrific psychoses and neuroses that women are going to have in 20 years as a result of abortion. The terrible tortures of soul 
when the honey treasure of the body is spent and no new life to show, of the priests who have left, and the black grace begins to work on them. It will be God's mercy. It will be a torture only when it is rejected, but not otherwise. The Spirit, then, not only unifies our soul, the Spirit convicts and convinces us of sin. That is why we do not need in confession to bark and shriek at others. A woman who had been away from confession 30 years came to a priest and began, Father, it's been 30 years since I've been away from the church and since I went to confession and he started to shout and shriek at her and said, Why have you been away for 30 years? She said, because 30 years ago, Father, I met a priest just like you. (laughs) Remember that the people who come to confession to us already have sorrow. They're on their knees there. And it's hard for them, just as it's hard for us. And we are supposed to be Christ in the confession, to lift them up and never be curious about their sin. Never. The most humble group of people that I ever met were prisoners. In one large prison, I interviewed the prisoners, or they came to see me from 8.30 in the morning until... 10 o'clock at night every day for a week, Catholic and non-Catholic alike. And their introduction was always the same. John Jones, number 2834, 20 years life, two murders. We have curtains before our lives. They were like window panes, transparent. One felt, therefore, that they were very receptive to God's grace. In fact, everyone is, in a certain sense, inasmuch as he has the spirit with a small s. And for the sake of brevity, although we haven't too much of that, You ever hear about the Irish couple that moved to Boston and raised the family, and one of the sons lived in Chicago. And the father died in Boston. The son in Chicago wired his brother and said, What were father's last words? Telegram came back. Father had no last words. Mother was with him to the end. (laughs) 
But we will speak of just one other aspect of the Spirit, and that is zeal. Light has two qualities, or rather fire, light and heat. Light is truth. Heat is love. The two should go together as the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in the Trinity. We have the truth, but the enemy has the zeal. And this is our problem. Zeal is only love, and that is what the Holy Spirit is. Love by its very nature is diffusive and giving. If there's any characteristic I would say that is needed today in the priesthood, it is that. A zeal for it. All for the church. For one another. For our people. For the unlovable. It is easy enough to love the lovable. We need, in other words, a little bit of waste in our lives. We're too saving of ourselves, too careful. We measure out what we will do. We think when we've done this or that, like the elder son, that we have done enough. The word enough does not exist in the spirit. Foolishness, an ecstasy against the cold reasonableness which turns into mediocrity. And that will come through living close to Christ in an hour. Remember a time our blessed Lord multiply the loaves and the fishes and he was afraid that his apostles were going to become engaged in politics because they wanted to make our Lord a king and they were caught up in this idea so he said you go over the other side of the lake and he went up on the mountain to pray the storm came up he watched them from the mountain the Lord is watching us even in our storms we do not know it and they saw the Lord coming they saw a specter coming. In one of the Gospels, we learn why they did not see that it was Christ because they had not understood the mystery of the bread, said Mark. The Eucharist. So it was a specter. Now we have a man who's got some zeal, a little bit of ecstasy was ready to follow the Lord. And when he sees that it is the Lord, he said, Lord, he said, bid me come to you. Let me walk on the waters. Now, can you imagine what the other apostles in that boat must have said? Here is this stupid individual who's going to do the unreasonable thing of getting out of the boat 
and walking on the water. Judas must have said, what are you going to do, go into vaudeville? Philip, listen, we've made 200 sociological surveys. Nobody's ever walked on water. Thomas said, what are you trying to do, kill yourself? Is this a death wish? And to his brother said, you damn fool, get back! But what did our Lord say? Come. Come. The Lord said, come. Peter, you're right. Be ecstatic. And Peter walked upon the waters. And then he began to sink. Peter, who could swim, because we know that he swam 400 yards the Sunday after Easter. Even our natural powers fail us sometimes. Why did Peter sink? The gospel says he took his eyes off Jesus. He took account of the winds. Took account of the winds. Oh, what's the wind of public opinion? The currents of surveys. Oh, there are priests leaving. Oh, maybe I better leave. Oh, nuns are leaving. Oh, maybe I better throw off the habit. What's the movement of the wind today? Let's follow everything. And Peter took account of all of the $400,000 Episcopal surveys, and he sank. He took his eyes off Christ. So I'm asking you, recover your zeal and your fire. Do not measure out your love and your service to the Lord. And that means spending an hour every day, not including the Mass. Part of it can be made the hour, part of the hour can be made before Mass, part after the Mass, then it would be considered continuous, but the Mass is not to be included in the Holy Hour. Everything else is. Spend that hour. Keep your eye on Christ for an hour, and you'll never sink. There never has been a priest in this country who made the daily holy hour, whoever left the church. Then we will begin to discover really what the Spirit of Christ is. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my good friends, and welcome back to this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I hope you enjoyed that first reflection titled Theology of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we all need a good lesson on the Holy Spirit, and who better to give us that lesson than the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, You could see he has just a gift for teaching the faith. 
And uh, again, I'm feeling blessed to have just uh, listened to that 30-minute reflection. And uh, as I said earlier, we just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, and so it's nice to have these words of wisdom given to us once again. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, does Fulton Sheen have some advice on, you know, understanding the problems of the church? And, uh, you know, I just look through his library of talks, and uh, usually there is one that speaks to that question. And so uh, Fulton Sheen did give a reflection uh, titled, The Problem of the Church Today. And so uh, I think we're all looking for answers to the problems. And so uh, let me assure you that Fulton Sheen has some of the answers. And so I would invite you once again to just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection simply on the problem of the church today. Please enjoy. Because we live in days of rapidism, indecision, and almost confusion, may I try to calm your spirits by presenting to you the problem of the church today. First of all, remember that the Church undergoes a tremendous change every 500 years. So does history. Go back to the first 500-year period, and you have the aftermath of the fall of Rome. The Church was then so upset that Jerome in the cave of Bethlehem thought the end of the world had come. St. Augustine spent 18 years writing the city of God, trying to explain the fall of Rome. In fact, he talked about Rome so much that as he, as he journeyed about northern Africa, the people said, Sitatiat the Roma, oh, if oh, you would only shut up about Rome. Then we come to the second 500-year period, the Muslim invasion. The Muslims came, first of all, to within 120 miles of Poitiers, and then later on swung the Crescent up to the very gates of Vienna. Along with that, there was the Eastern Schism. The Eastern Schism begun by Phocius and Micah Serialarius. And they break away the Eastern Church, even to this hour. In the third period, there was the religious revolution, the decay of morals, the decline of religion, far worse than today. There was need of a reformation. Reformers very often reform the wrong thing. What was needed was a reformation of the way men lived, not the way men were thinking. There was nothing wrong with the faith. There was something wrong with morals. And now we are living in the fourth period. And 
The church today is undergoing change principally because, that we shall show in, a, show in a moment, of the impact of the world upon us. In each of these periods, the church had great errors or heresies to meet. In the first 500 years, the church always was battling with what we have called Christological heresies. Namely, how many intellects did Christ have? How many wills? How many persons? How many natures? This was the struggle. With Arianism, of course, creating the greatest disturbance of all. Then in the second 500-year period, the difficulty that we had to face was not with the historical Christ, but it was rather with the head of the mystical body. So the Eastern churches broke with the head. In the third 500-year period, our difficulty was not with the head, it was with the body. So the church split up into many sects. First period, the historical Christ. Second period, the head of the mystical body, the Holy Father. Third period, the body itself. Our time, what? The world. Our environment. The impact of science, technology, eroticism, and the spirit of the modern world that God is dead. It is really the easiest of any of the enemies we've had. And it is a tragedy that so many succumb. What we are face to face with is this. We are living at the end of Christendom. Now do not go out and say, Bishop Sheen said we're at the end of Christianity. That's the way the newspapers would put it. I said we're at the end of Christendom. What is Christendom? Christendom is the political, economic, social life of nations influenced by the gospel ethic. Christianity is the leaven in the mass. But with the death of Christendom, that leaven is disappearing. We are not at the end of Christianity. But I think we are at the end of Christmas. Twenty-five, thirty years ago, who would have thought of abortion? Forty years ago, a divorced woman came into St. Thomas's Church, Episcopal Church in New York City, and the whole congregation turned their backs to the divorced woman. The decline of morals? Public decency? This means that Christianity today is not the letter. We will not have time to say what we should be. 
and what we sometimes fail to recognize, because worldliness has too much gotten hold of us, we are really a separated people. And that's the meaning of ecclesia, ecclesia, being called out. We are not of the world, but today we say we are of the world. So we're contributing to a great extent. Now what are some of the consequences of this change in this fourth period? First of all, we have become apathetic. There are no fires. We've become very broad-minded. Indifferent. Senator Kennedy wrote a poem once comparing Christ coming to Golgotha and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. He said, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruelties, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. So it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the streets without a soul to see, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. It was more endurable than the indifference of our day. Thou art neither hot nor cold, therefore will I spew thee out of my mouth. I quoted Yeats, who said that today the good are indifferent, the weak are filled with passionate intensity. Bourdaloo said that the world would end by giving a great yawn and the devil would come out of the mouth. T.S. Eliot, the poet, said the world will end not with a bang, but with a whimper. And our Lord said we will be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, just as people did in the day of Noah. So one of the consequences of this fourth period is we lack fire. If there is any fire and intensity, and if there is a great love of the absolute, that fire and intensity is applied to the political order and not to Christ. No great fire for him. But any political, economic subject, and immediately one is almost on the verge of conflict. 
That's the first consequence. A second consequence is what might be called the hodiernization of theology. By that I mean making theology today. One does not become known by saying that two and two make four. But one does become known by saying that two and two make five. Ibsen said that it once, and he was quoted all over the world. Chesterton answered him and said, how do you know that two and two make four except by adding over and over again? How do you know that two and two make five? Except by adding over and over again, two and two make four. There is a fixity. But today we've gotten away from scripture in theology. We are answering one another's questions. We are not discussing theological issues. One theologian writes this, another writes this. And the result is the depth of theology is lost. St. Paul was very much disturbed at that, even in his own day, when he wrote to Timothy. And in his first letter, I think it was the sixth chapter, if anyone is teaching otherwise, he will not give his mind a wholesome precept. I mean those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to good religious teaching, I call him a pompous ignoramus. He's morbidly keen on mere verbal questions and quibblings, which give rise to jealousy, quarreling, slander, base suspicion, and endless wranglings. All typical of men who have let their reasoning powers become atrophied, atrophied and have lost the grip of truth. We've given up scripture. Believe me, there are three things that are absolutely necessary in a well-developed Christian life. An alarm clock to get you up for the holy hour, the Eucharist to keep your faith, and the Bible to make you learn it. If you notice how very little of scripture is quoted today. So this is another effect. But it is only a certain type of theology would be quite wrong to condemn all. And the third effect of this modern crisis is the decay of the science of catechetics. As I told you before, we start with the community. Marxism has finally influenced us. The primacy of the mass. I mean the group, the community. The assumption that if we know Christian doctrine, that we will be Christians. Our blessed Lord 
never say. If you know my truth, you will do my will. But he did say, if you do my will, you will know my truth. Believe me, obedience is the condition of knowing science. No scientist ever dictates to nature. He lets nature talk to him. So it's the training of the will that we have to develop in our theology. The reintroduction into catechetics of a bit of discipline and order and law. That for our contemporary time. Now, how are we to feel about it? When we say we're at the end of Christendom? When we bemoan indifference? The decay of theology and catechetics? Are we to be sad? No. These are great and wonderful days in which to be alive. Wonderful. Forty years ago, it was easy to be a Christian. The very air we breathed was inspired by the Christian ethic. We could walk safely on our streets, not troubled by dishonesty in the merchant world. Marriages were rather solid. It was easy to be Christian. The atmosphere was Christian. It was healthy. Today it is not. And today only the strong survive. Some of those going along with the currents of secularism. Listen, dead bodies float downstream. Anyone can be with it. It takes a live body to resist the current. And that's why these are great days. And who are the strongest in the church? Not the priests, though America has a very good priesthood. Not the sisters. They are fairly good, but they've been more infected with secularism than the priests. Who? The laity. The laity is the hope of the church. It always has been in every great crisis. The greatest crisis the church ever faced was Arianism. Arianism, very simply, was the notion that Christ is nothing but a good man. When the hypostatic union was defined in 325, there immediately began to be a number of bishops and priests who became Arians. As a matter of fact, most of the bishops of Spain and Portugal and France and Germany became at least semi-Arians. They were not sure that Christ was God. Maybe he was just a man. 
There were ten provincial councils that were held in the church up from that time until the year 385. And every one of those provincial councils became Aryan or semi-Aryan. Never before was the church so near a collapse. The big council of Constantinople was held in 385. The laity gathered for it. And every bishop that came in, they gave him a painting of Our Lady. And they said to the bishop, you have been discussing the question of whether or not Christ is just a perfect man. We will tell you who the perfect creature is. It's Mary. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection uh, where Bishop Sheen helps make sense of what the problems of the church are today. And uh, there is a solution. And, uh, of course, that solution is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and uh, that we would all come under his rule and his kingship. And, of course, that we would, uh, again, invite the Blessed Virgin Mary to be our queen and our mother. And, of course, Fulton Sheen ended his talk making mention of her. My dear friends, thank you for your emails, your words of encouragement, uh, and of course it is a blessing to be here on Radio Maria. And people ask me from time to time uh, what website they can visit to purchase these uh, audio recordings, and uh, people want to own their own, um, I want to say, digital library. And so I always point people to a website uh, simply titled FultonSheen.com. And there at FultonSheen.com, you can download for one low price of, I believe it's $29, uh, over 300 audio recordings of uh, Fulton Sheen's talks. And so uh, that is truly a good-sized library. So again, the website FultonSheen.com, uh, where you can purchase these uh, MP3 recordings and, uh, again, have them for your own enjoyment. Um, I know I listen to these recordings while I'm in my car. And, again, uh, who better to have in my head than, uh, of course, this great archbishop. And so, again, uh, people who've asked me, I simply point them to the website FultonSheen.com for a great digital library. And, uh, my dear friends, uh, until next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.